Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Big thanks to Sydney Network uh, for Democracy and the Australian Institute of Polish Affairs for organizing it and for hosting this event. Uh, Thank you above all to all of you, ladies and gentlemen, for deciding to spend such a wonderful uh, Sydney uh, evening uh, listening to my comments about uh, a very distant country, but a country close to my heart. Uh, and I presume also to the hearts of many of you. In November 2015, a survey was conducted in Poland in which 55% of respondents Respondents agreed that democracy is in danger in Poland. So I feel like speaking for this majority of people who are concerned about democracy and concerned about democracy in Poland. Uh, I think that the first answer to the question, which is the topic of my paper, is that perhaps democracy is in real danger when people don't care about it, not when people are concerned about it. So it's in the sense a theme you will find in my comments, that concerns about democracy does not mean that in Poland democracy collapsed. Poland is not Belarus and Russia, and the evidence for it is a very vibrant pro-democratic movement which is in Poland, uh, as well as strong public opinion, very strong opposition, uh, including oppositional media, which uh, are the symptoms of good democracy. But above all, concerns about this democracy is to me the sign that things in Poland might not be very bad. It's not a situation in which democracy is dying, but a situation in which many people are concerned about its health. Uh, in order to answer the question, which is not a straightforward answer, I'll have to move to the uh, my presentation which uh, I will need help uh, <laughs> with uh, if you can move to the slides I'll show a few slides and if you can open page one of the presentation uh, I will continue because it presents the uh, argument that the controversial moves of the law and justice government weaken liberal democracy in Poland by undermining the rule of law and by deepening the rift with, within the political class. This rift, division, its depth and acrimony is something I would like to focus on 
because one of the most important findings in contemporary social science is that liberal democracy needs a high degree of consensus among the ruling strata. Not consensus about the ideology or political program, but consensus about the rules of the game, the rules of engagement on which democratic, liberal democracy rests. It's a foundation. The controversial policies represent not so much reversal from democracy as anti-liberal backlash in Poland. Democracy is not the target of this backlash. The attacks are directed rather against liberal policies, values and cultural standards uh, as well as against the liberal urban intelligentsia cultivating these values. Democracy, so to speak, is a collateral damage. Not intended target, but collateral damage. This backlash resembles urbanization. There is the process of illiberal shift which Hungary experiences under the leadership of Viktor Orban. It's not Putinization, uh, but the Polish illiberal shift has also distinctive characteristics about which I would like to talk. And uh, I would like to mention not only the nature of this illiberal shift, but also, importantly, the causes and some consequences. Uh, it will take me probably five minutes, so I apologize that it has to be done in such a shorthand way. The best thing to start uh, this argument is to go to the beginning. Poland, after 1989, experienced a very successful transformation. Transformation which has been described by its architects as return to Europe. It had four major directions. First, the uh, command economy was transformed into a market economy, competitive market economy. Secondly, and perhaps most importantly, the dictatorship of Communist Party was replaced by liberal plural democracy. Thirdly, the state stopped to be a party state and became the constitutional state. And fourthly, Polish culture, which was heavily censored and controlled under the communist rule, became a free culture, open to global European influences. This was, above all, a very successful economic transformation, although initially quite painful. Poland's gross national uh, income, the GDP, grew fourth time within this period. It's unprecedented growth. Uh, and it has been the fastest growth in Central Eastern Europe and in Europe in general. It continues. Uh, still, Poland grow at the level of between 3.5 and 3.8% per year, which at the time of slow growth everywhere in the world is a marvel. 
The same successful shift occurred in the political domain. All the measures of good governance showed an increase, especially from about 2005. And not only control of corruption, but also government effectiveness, political stability, uh, regulatory quality, violence and accountability, and the rule of law, all of them showed this increase, which is the envy of not only Eastern Europe, but also the entire Europe. And that is important because not all countries experiencing transformation were going through such uh, upward turn. Uh, some of them did follow this transformation path, successful transformations. Others, like Hungary, started to show certain signs of uh, problems, governance problems. And this is important to remember because, as I argue, Poland new, Poland's new government is promising to take Poland to Budapest, the Hungarian way, the same way as Viktor Orban uh, tries to move Hungary, and that is a very dangerous path, as I would like to argue. This uh, transformation, return to Europe, formed a very strong basis of the so-called solidarity consensus in Poland. All the ruling groups, all the ruling, uh, all the governments shared the major direction uh, of this return to Europe. And it became a form of uh, ideology of transformation together with consensus among all the rulers, regardless of their ideological or political coloring. This was also a vision shared by the Catholic Church and the immensely popular Pope, Polish Pope John Paul II. In his uh, um, booklet, Europe of the Spirit, uh, written at the turn of the 21st century, the Pope outlined the vision, his vision of the new order, social and political order in Europe and in Poland, which included not only ideological neutrality, but also, I'm quoting, the dignity of the human person as the source of rights, respect for democratically agreed juridical norms, especially the constitutional norms and human rights, and pluralism of the organization in the organization of society. So it wasn't just a political consensus among the Polish political class, but very widely shared in the population. And this consensus, ruling consensus, seemed to start to unravel. Uh, following the last year's election, uh, government made certain very controversial steps which uh, caused 
concerns among everyone and which uh, uh, caused even a reaction in the European Union, in the Council of Europe, uh, as well as among Poland's most important friend and ally, the United States, whose three senior senators uh, representing the Republicans and the Democrats sent an open letter in February this year to the Polish Prime Minister, Mrs. Beata Szydło, in which they say, we are writing to express concerns about recent actions taken by the Polish government that threaten the independence of state media and the country's highest court and undermine Poland's role as a democratic model for other countries in the region still going through difficult transition. We urge your government to recommit to the core principle of the OSCE and the European Union, including the respect for democracy, human rights, and the rule of law that has made Poland such a strong and vibrant member of the community of democracies and a stalwart, stalwart ally of the United States and the heart of Europe. So uh, this is uh, serious concerns if such uh, strong allies, friends of Poland, write those words. Why? Uh, Probably the two reasons mentioned by Senator McCain during and uh, Senator uh, Cardi is that two pieces of legislation passed in Poland, uh, one concerning the role of the Constitutional Tribunal and the role of the independent public prosecutor, weaken the role of tribunal and independent judiciary in balancing the power of the government, of the top leaders and politicians. And second concerns the appointment of the media, public media, public media supervisor, who is known for his very strongly partisan view and who committed himself to making the media national. Not free, but national. And hence the concern. There were other also uh, steps which increased, made this majority of Poles concerns about state of democracy, is the uh, extending the surveillance rights to the police without the court agreement, as well as cancelling the merit criteria in appointment to the top position in the civil service. Thus, uh, endangering the effectiveness of the state. Uh, why these uh, pieces of legislation cause such a wave of concerns? Uh, in order to better explain that, I have to make a small digression about the nature of modern democracy, for which I apologize because we have here experts who know democracy uh, much better, but which uh, will be very short. So you can doze off uh, John and Martin for five minutes while I'm doing a bit of social science one, uh, which is nevertheless important as a part of the argument I'm making. The history of democracy can be seen with great simplification as a way of 
restraining and constraining the powers of the top political rulers, be it monarchs or presidents, from two sides, so to speak. On the one side, constraining it, preventing it from being tyranny by constitutional and other laws, bills, charters of rights. Therefore, we read the history of modern democracy, usually starting with the role of the Magna Carta, the role of the Bill of Rights, American Constitution, and all those legal constraints which are essential in balancing political power with also judicial power and the power of legislature. The second way of constraining the power of political leaders is through creating representative bodies, parliaments and forms of uh, 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 public bodies which enforce on governments their responsibility to the sovereign, to the people. Such groups, of course, started as very narrow representative bodies, usually of estates, but evolved, especially in the 19th century, into broadly representative body with the expansion of franchise, with enfranchising new and new categories of people, to the extent that today very few people are excluded from having voice in public matters. So these two containing and constraining forces, the laws, the constitutional bills, including human rights, civil rights, political rights, social rights, and which safeguard those rights against possible erosion by political leaders, as the founding fathers of the American Constitution mentioned, Constitution is the defense. It's against the possibility of a tyranny of majority. There are certain principles, certain rights, which no political authority can touch. And it's safeguarded by juridical bodies, including high courts, constitutional tribunals, supreme courts in the United States. It's unthinkable that political rulers might do something which those bodies safeguarding rights, constitutional rights, judge as illegal or anti-constitutional or unconstitutional. Of course, constitutions can be changed too, and they evolve. Americans add uh, every time and again the amendments to their constitution, but those amendments are done by the book, by the book, in line with the constitutions. And all democratic nations surrender their constitutions, their basic bills of rights and charter, with certain conditions under which they can be amended or changed. They require usual constitutional majority, period of discussion, and referenda or plebiscites which approve them. It's quite obvious in Australia, in the country where we got used to it. So what I'm saying 
is uh, an obvious thing to anyone living in Australia, uh, but it's very often, very frequently misunderstood in Europe, especially in places where democracy took roots only recently. Because, partly because, the uh, uh, communist authorities in particular also call their regimes democratic, insisting that it's people's democracy. And they used majorities and minorities in order to erode the constitutional laws. The Bolsheviks and the fascists in Europe did not dissolve parliaments. The German parliament remained operating till 1945. What they changed was the constitution. They destroyed the rule of law. They ignored constitutions and changed them in an arbitrary way. The end of my uh, uh, social science one. Uh, <laughs> and uh, now to an important consequence and correlate of this fact that democracy grew and has been growing as a system of constraining political authority by constitutional laws which cannot be changed in an arbitrary manner and on the other hand by representative bodies. And the balance between the three political power, the executive, the judiciary and the legislature is essential for good function. It's essential because it results in a form of ruling consensus among the most powerful people, let's call them power elites, in all democratic societies. All societies, including democracies, liberal democracies, have their power elites, people who are powerful, uh, and groups of those most powerful people can function in a democratic way when they share the ruling consensus about the balance of power, about the way of conducting politics. Politics can become and remain democratic only as long as there is a consensus about the democratic rules of the game. It's like a game of cricket or rugby, which remains a game in which the differences between teams can be resolved, but only as long as they respect the umpire and decisions, the chucking is not on, the underarm bowling is not on. It's not an accident that rugby is the most frequently uh, mentioned game uh, as a metaphor for democratic politics. It's tough, it's tough. Politics anywhere is always like rugby, very tough. The players are down and dirty, as Americans would say. But they never dismiss the umpire. They play by the rules of the game, and as long as they agree about those rules of the game, it is the game. It's not a pub brawl. brawl. The game in the sense that it's normatively regulated by not only constitutional laws, which respect all those citizenship rights, but also by unwritten political conventions which are respected 
by all players. If they agree about the rules of the game, they can differ in their political views. You can have communists on the left-hand side and conservatives on the uh, uh, right. You can have all forms of political ideology playing with each other because it's not a fight, but a game. It's not a brawl, but it's a competition. It's a competition for votes because they have to assure a consent of people in election every three, four years and because they treat each other as rivals. Rivals, not enemies. This brings us to the key concern that in Poland those controversial measures created a very deep rift. A rift which endangers the ruling consensus. It's not a rift about ideology, about the programs. Everyone agrees in democracy that government which wins election has a right to pursue policies this government presented during electoral campaigns. There is no doubt about that. Everyone agrees that this is absolutely essential condition of democratic functioning. But when the constitutional rules of engagement become questioned, the game starts to be different and ceases to be the game very often. So this ruling consensus includes not only respect for civil, political, social and cultural rights, which all constitutions spell out, but also the norm of restrained partisanship. That no party attacks enemies, their uh, rivals, in the way which damages the game. There is no chucking. There is no forbidden way of tackling, like in rugby. And umpire has always to be right. So the umpire can hand red or yellow cards to governments. This makes uh, democracy a form of a political game which is also compatible with monarchies. We are a constitutional monarchy, but we are democracy because it's a constitutional monarchy. In Australia we have an impeccably neutral head of state, the Queen. <laughs> uh, we've got fiercely independent courts, often handing red cards to governments. We've got uh, the ABC and SBS, which safeguard their independence, which safeguard their independence by having a board and having policy of balanced information. If we worry about it, this is something which we can uh, subject to public debates, and we've got those debates going all the time, a sign of uh, vibrant democracy. And we've got professional public service. It's not that professional public service, the arm of government, is always non-partisan. They are. And uh, we know that governments try to appoint loyalists 
to the top position of bureaucracy, but never by waiving meritocratic criteria. Okay? So they can be loyalists, but they have to fulfill also the criteria of professional excellence which are safeguarded by the board. And uh, a robust civil society. Robust civil society in which the issue of democracy are discussed is the sign that democracy is liberal and vibrant. But when the uh, norms, rules of political engagement become questioned, when the umpire is dismissed, we have to start worrying about the state of liberal democracy. Not necessarily electoral part of this democracy, but this first way of constraining political rulers by constitutional laws. Because this constraint rests on the capacity of the highest court to hand government a red card. When this highest court, constitutional tribunal, high court in Australia, supreme court in uh, the United States, is in any way restrained or incapacitated, there are genuine worries about the state of liberal democracy. In Poland, this controversial moves of the government and the debates, uh, to me, look very much like a repetition of very similar uh, moves by Hungarian Viktor Orban. But uh, there are some differences, and generally those departure from liberal democracy are enormously varied. And uh, political scientists, social scientists coined even a name for the democracies which start to depart from some aspects of liberal democracies, illiberal democracies. Illiberal democracies which have elections, they might have also uh, electoral competition, they might have representative bodies, but some aspects of liberties, constitutional rights are ignored, waived or weakened. And there are many types uh, to paraphrase the famous first sentence from Tolstoy, Anna Karenina, why liberal democracies are all similar to each other, the illiberal democracies are illiberal, each in its specific way. And those departures vary from uh, uh, restraining, constraining, paralyzing the highest courts, from uh, uh, constraining democratic reflection of public views, civil society, uh, to various forms of intimidation of the opposition. Russia is not a democracy. Okay? Russia departed from democracy in all fronts. When? Well, it's difficult to judge because democracy, liberal democracy, includes so many factors. Rule of law, uh, free uh, expression, as well as parliamentary representation of all views, all people, plural representation. 
uh, it's very difficult to say at what point Putin took Russia away from democracy, but there is an agreement that uh, by 2005 to 8, Russia ceased to be listed by various international agencies as a democratic society. Not Hungary. In Hungary it happened a different way and perhaps it's worth spending a few minutes to highlight the difference. First, Orban and Kaczyński, Jarosław Kaczyński is the leader of the Polish uh, uh, victorious party uh, Law and Justice, which is sometimes referred by its acronym PIS, P-I-S. Uh, they are different in many respects. Uh, Orban is a Calvinist. Jarosław Kaczyński in Poland is a, a Roman Catholic. Uh, Orban loves Putin. Kaczyński hates Putin and accuses him of plotting to kill his uh, twin brother in the uh, plane crash in 2010. Orban and this is a very important difference, opposes any form of political moves uh, which might uh, result in economic sanctions towards Russia. Uh, uh, Kaczynski sees Russia as the major danger in, uh, in Europe. But above all, Orban in 2010 election in Hungary gained a constitutional majority. It's very important. Because as I mentioned previously, constitutions are not cast in iron. They evolve, they change. But they change by the book. And in Hungary, in Poland, constitutional change, especially the role of uh, courts and tribunals, as well as the operation of politics, requires two-thirds majority on the floor of Parliament, as well as majority in the Senate, upper house, with minimum 50% presence, uh, as well as confirmatory uh, public uh, um, um, plebiscites, which approve. And uh, Orban uh, did his changes to the Constitution with parliamentary majority and by the book. They were illiberal changes. Nevertheless, neither European Union, nor Council of Europe, nor American friends and allies could in any way intervene because he did it partly by the book. I say partly by the book because there are big debates what constitute breaches and what doesn't constitute breaches. It's very important because Many people think that Poland has been treated very badly by EU, European Council, Americans, uh, while Hungary got away with similar changes. They are important differences. I'm not uh, urban uh, Viktor Orban's uh, big friends. Nevertheless, in a fairness, one might say that uh, his sins were much more obvious. While uh, these sort of introductory rules uh, uh, took me a lot of time, uh, I'll make uh, my 
main comments about the causes and consequences very, very short. Why this uh, illiberal turn in Poland? Uh, the sociological explanation points to two particular constituencies which were mobilized by law and justice during the presidential and during the parliamentary elections in Poland. They are both very anti-liberal social categories and the way of appealing to those groups uh, created this syndrome of liberalism being, uh, if not attacked, at least seriously eroded. During the presidential elections in May-June 2015, the candidates of the Law and Justice Party uh, made appeals which got him a support of a youthful group which I would like to call precariat, precariat. Young people who experience very high unemployment and experience very bad labor market condition. And that points to a dark sides of the Polish transformation. That although it was successful in providing growing income, at the same time, it alienated the whole generation of young people who experienced not only general unemployment, but catastrophic youth unemployment in Poland. The red line shows the level of youth unemployment. Remember, in the first four years, under mostly uh, left-wing SLD government in Poland, in spite of the very rapid economic growth of economy functioning very, very well, over 40% of young people couldn't find a job. That was catastrophic. The consequence of it was not only the alienation of young people from society, which did not provide them opportunities to start their life, but also alienation from the left. The left evaporated in Poland never regained public trust because young people remembered and young people are, so to speak, natural constituency of left of center parties. They felt betrayed by the left, seized voting left and wiped out the parties of the left from the political spectrum. Uh, and they experienced a rebound of youth unemployment not only after the uh, great uh, recession, as it is called in Europe, Poland avoided mercifully the worst ravages of this 2009 uh, great recession. But the rebound coincided also with the spread of the so-called unsecured labor contract. In Poland, they are known as rubbish contract, śmieciowe contract, which did not provide people with social security, which gave them only salaries. People from China would nod uh, because the same 
happens in China. Many people have terrible labor contract, leaving them in, in insecurity. Hence the name precariat refers to the sense of insecurity, precarious life. The safety valve in Poland was, of course, migration. Nearly three million young Poles migrated all over Europe. The fastest and more frequent, uh, most frequent moves were uh, in uh, around uh, 2000 and between 2004 and 2008. Uh, and they had less to do with the political party and government at that time and more to do with the opening of the European markets. Just before the 2008 great crisis, economies in Europe were hungry for young workers and Polish young people experiences unemployment and rubbish contracts at home moved en masse to Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, forming a, a huge migrant labor force there. And they also voted very strongly against the uh, civil, Civic Union, PO, government in 2015. They voted against the establishment, which they associated with the deprivation of their precarious life. The most successful political leader who mobilized these young people against the uh, establishment was uh, Paweł Kukis, a very new political leader who entered the presidential contest and managed to get 20% of vote predominantly from young, unskilled people who were feeling left behind and who were left behind in Poland. And it was angry political vote, vote of protest, anti-establishment, cooking wood the sentiments of those young people by attacking the establishment as corrupt and unresponsive to social needs. But they also were attracted to the law and justice candidate, Mr. Duda, who presented a similar message. Poland is in ruins. You are the main victims. So he wooed them, and in the second round, decisive round of election, where only two candidates were competing, 60% of Kukis voice moved to Duda. Cookies is a product of popular culture more than politics. He is a punk rocker whose songs are after those corrupt uh, powers that be and politicians. Uh, but he doesn't provide any solutions. Unfortunately, uh, he is one of those uh, uh, extreme uh, snake oil sellers uh, like Beppe Grillo in Italy like uh, Pauline Hansen in Australia. Very, uh, uh, very uh, right-wing uh, in his policies and pointing to all sorts of conspiracies. Recently, he uh, accused the pro-democratic protesters of uh, being on the pay of uh, Jewish financiers. 
uh, and you recognize the uh, extreme right and left because they are moving to the conspiracy theories. The left has its kulaks, the right has its Jewish financiers. They are standard targets of, uh, of mobilization. And second electorate, who also was deeply illiberal, illiberal, revolutionary, uh, were the old people, religious, attending church regularly, without skills, who also felt left behind, but not so much by the Polish economy as for Polish culture. They were alienated culturally. They felt that the liberal, secular culture coming to Poland via media from the West uh, is not their culture, that they are marginalized in this country, uh, culture. The evidence, if you look at the differentiating variables in elections, they provide the best evidence that those electorates were crucial for the victory of law and justice. In presidential election, the most important differentiating variable, that is the characteristic of peoples who voted for the law and justice candidates, was the low age, young people, with low skill and low education. Okay? This were the important audience. Uh, people who felt the losers left behind. In the parliamentary election, it was the attendance of the church. Among people who attended the church at least once a week, 62% voted for law and justice. And the average vote was slightly below 38%. So great disproportion indicating the effective political mobilization of those audiences, uh, audiences which include people with low education, low level of skills, and also who were uh, very frequent church attenders. Uh, and uh, I think uh, I should uh, conclude by saying what are the consequences of such illiberal mobilization? Obviously, illiberal policies. Uh, the mobilization means that the government elected by such specific uh, groups is obliged to pursue policies which those groups favor, which are not liberal and which break this return to Europe consensus and create a very deep rift. The rift within elites which makes the pursuit of politics in this liberal regulated way extremely difficult. And it's also associated with terrible acrimony. People call each other traitors. The debate between the two sides is poisoned by toxic passions, as James Madison used to call them. Passions which are incompatible with politics understood as rivalry, as competition. But it, when it appears 
uh, it's associated with politics as a fight and struggle, in which many constitutional fine points, the right of people to presumption of innocence, except when sentenced, when found guilty by courts, uh, very often widened out, a victim of this acrimonious debate. If Poland is moving towards Hungary, south, it also should look at the performance of, of Hungary. This role model is not very good. The Hungarian policy, strongly nationalistic, strongly uh, illiberal, strongly uh, accused of dictatorial bands, do not point in the same direction as return to Europe, the European consensus. Hungary is also doing badly economically. It had recessions not only in 2009, but also 2012, and Poland now exceeded uh, the GDP per person of Hungary in its national wealth. So it's, uh, it's not a very optimistic conclusion, but I'd like to return to my first sentence in conclusion. Namely that democracy is in danger, in real danger, when people don't care. Okay? When people do care. When people discuss it publicly. When they consider people with different views as their rivals, not enemies, democracy is still in a relatively good shape. And this worry about democracy in Poland is above all the positive factor in my perception of the overall state of democracy in Poland. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Uh, <coughs> as advertised, I'm a rule of law guy, and I will say something about that. Uh, Jan has given you a magisterial survey of what has happened, an argument about why it's happened, and a pessimistic, almost completely but not wholly pessimistic, uh, projection of the potential consequences of that. I, don't, I do endorse all of it. I don't have anything in terms of detail to add to it. Perhaps I should stop here, but I won't, because I'd like to deepen a couple of implications or at least delve into a couple of implications of terms which featured a lot in Jan's talk, in particular liberal democracy and illiberal democracy. Institutions in settled political systems have a logic. They're not just a random grad bag, a bit of this, a bit of a court here, a party there. There is a logic. If you want liberal democracy, certain functions will need to be satisfactorily fulfilled. If you want illiberal democracy, which is not simply the absence of liberal, it is another game, it's another architecture, then you will look at institutions in a different way. In liberal democracy, you have to simplify greatly and embarrassedly, because if I'm a rule of law guy, this is the democracy guy, nevertheless I'm here, I have to keep talking. In liberal democ democracy, for it to function successfully, you need at least 
two jobs to be done. One is the governors, you have to have a system for choosing governors. And the second is you have to have a system or institutions for taming the powerful, which centrally includes governors, but not only governors. Now, we use elections to choose governments, and they're good at that. They do something to tame governments as well, but they do it rather weakly and wholesale. They can't get into the details, they can't get into day-by-day affairs, they happen rarely every four years in Poland. So if you're interested in taming, in containing power, then you have to look at what John has extensively written about monitoring institutions. Institutions which, if elections are horizontal in their, if you want to uh, characterize them, you would think of institutions of horizontal accountability. Other governmental institutions like courts, like an independent prosecutor, non-governmental institutions like the press, social institutions like a strong civil society. You need all of that stuff to be in good shape for your democracy to be in good shape because if you don't have the second lot of institutions, you have a tendency and a danger of at least three things. Monopoly of power, The people who have the power have all the power and that's dangerous for very obvious reasons. The famous English liberal of the 19th century talked about the tendency of power to corrupt and absolute power to corrupt absolutely. He didn't invent the notion. People had noticed it before. Secondly, wild and arbitrary power are terrible things. Everybody who knows something about Eastern Europe, but you don't only have to know about Eastern Europe, knows that people there over generations, centuries, have been victims of wild and arbitrary power and it's a terrible, terrible way to live. So you want to try to institutionalise some way to constrain to make that not a routine possibility. And thirdly, you want to avoid stupid power. Governments which don't have to defend themselves, which don't have to provide reasons, suddenly run out of reasons. They do what the governing body wants them to do and suddenly they don't have to defend themselves, they don't have to worry if they've made a mistake, they're unlikely to worry if they've made a mistake. So, as John has written in his splendid book, since he plugged me so nicely, I'll plug him in turn, but he deserves it, on the life and death of democracy, democracy is a powerful remedy for insolence, its purpose is to stop people getting screwed. That's a technical political science term, but (laughs) we can understand it. Okay, so you need these two sorts of institutions for these jobs to be done. No one, is my second point, is complaining that in Poland there was something wrong with the elections. The elections were held, they were fair, they were free, and peace in league with Kukis' party won a majority fairly and they are entitled to govern. The problem is at the second horizontal level. This government has been in power not quite four months. In that period, as Jan has told us, there has been the extraordinary, sustained and unconstitutional attack on the constitutional court. There has been renovation of media law to make the public media, uh, the chiefs of them sackable, they have been sacked, and replaceable under the direction of the government, the Treasury. There have been amendments to the civil service law to allow the top echelon to be appointed by the government, not according to meritocratic uh, criteria whatsoever. Thank you. English is a problem for me. Uh, Then 
The independence of the prosecutor has been eliminated. The government's chief head kicker, Zbigniew Zobro, uh, will become the chief prosecutor. That is again unprecedented, not unprecedented under communism. That was, sorry? No, 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 it's not. The, the, the prosecutor is a separate office in Australia. Uh, but I, I'm glad you interrupted, but I hope you don't do it too often, because uh, my point here is not that there is one institutional foible or another institutional foible, but what we are looking at is something which is a systematic assault on institutions, an assault which seeks to degrade them in one of two ways, either by capture, they become ours, not mine, but ours, or by subversion, which is what is happening with the Constitutional Court, which was no longer going to be able for the foreseeable future even to decide issues of, on constitutional challenges to the government. Now, Jan has talked about illiberal democracy. In uh, July 2014, Viktor Orban, of whom we've heard a bit, uh, proudly said, Hungary is an illiberal state, but he didn't invent the concept. A Pakistani-American journalist, Farid Zakaria, wrote an article in 1997 where he, to the surprise of a lot of readers, in, coined this term, illiberal democracy. He said, look, we've been fighting for democracy, democracy for a century, now we've got democracies all over the place. Democracy, he said, is flourishing, but liberalism is not flourishing because this second order of institutions in Belarusia, in Hungary and maybe threatened in Poland is subverted by people who are happy to get votes and can engineer to get votes, particularly if they can nobble the media, independent institutions, etc., but are not happy to share power with ish institutions which can ask them questions to which there can be appeal, which can review their decisions, which can publicise, criticise and so on. Now, it's not just a matter of particular difference of ideology. There is an enormous difference of ideology between peace and between PO and other parties. What I'm talking about is something which distresses me a great deal and it's not a matter of particulars. It is a matter of a lack of a sense or a hostility to institutions per se, unless there are institutions. So if you attack the head of the Constitutional Court as a person, you are ignoring that he is also a member, he is the head of the Constitutional Court. If you attack all sorts of offices by simply saying that their people are corrupt and are going to be got rid of, if you have the former head of your uh, anti-corruption commission who was found in a court of law a few months ago to be guilty of uh, various offences and sentenced to three years in jail and you then, the first thing you do is appoint him to be head of the secret police... No, look, please. Could we wait? Could we wait? I'm, I'm sure I'm missing every point, but one point is civility and discussion. I'm trying to stick to that. What... What happened, the, the court decision may be, it is reviewable, and the court decision may be false. For all I know, and there are some allegations of this, the court decision may even have been corrupt. It's not the job of a government to say, well, I don't care 
about the appeal. I don't wait for the review. I simply appoint uh, this man as head of the secret police. Now, civility is an important concept to which I'll come and I'd like to hear some of it, or actually less of its opposite, as I come to my conclusion. Uh, the, one of the indexes of uh, the lack of institutional sense or hostility to institutional sense is the presence of the leader, the most powerful man in Poland himself, Mr Kaczynski. Because he was a, such a controversial figure, he did not uh, run for president. A young, attractive man was brought to run for president. A lot of the popular talk was this was a different piece. This was a more civilised, more attractive person. This was not the man who leads to hostilities, who talks his calls his opponents the worst sort of polls, is a different figure. Then, when the parliamentary elections a few months later came, the party was led by, and the party that was won, was led by another public non-entity, Beata Szydło. As soon as the elections were over, it was evident to everybody there was one man in Poland running the show, Kaczynski. He has not been elected to that position. He has none of the constraints of that position. He meets with Orban for a six-hour meeting. The Prime Minister is not invited to that. The President is not invited to that. Now, that may be wonderful. They're nice guys. I'm sure they enjoy each other's company. But it is a complete rejection of the significance of institutions. This is an insistence on the personalisation of rule. And when rules are personalised to that extent then the notion, the difficult, difficult harmony, orchestration of a liberal democracy where a lot of things have to play off against each other and you can't rely on having all the right people in office so you rely on the officers, all of this comes under threat. Two more things and to conclude. Uh, it's not a peace innovation. It's common in Eastern Europe and it's common in Poland. But peace accelerated it with single-minded determination and ruthlessness. And that is the sense of a politicised politicized institutions. There's no sense, there nor was there under communism, that there needs to be some independent roots and integrity of institutions. Rather, it's ours or theirs. OK, we've got it, so we need them. And that drives a great deal of the changes that we've been talking about. Let me conclude with one last reflection which is both historical, autobiographical and present-oriented. It's all those things, so we have another hour, I'll be talking. Uh, Jan mentioned, and it's a wonderful phrase I hadn't heard, uh, the notion of toxic passions. I wrote a book called Civil Passions, which John mentioned, largely inspired by my uh, romantic attachment to the Poland of the 80s, to the birth of, to the utilisation of the notion of civil society, to the birth of a notion that there were us who trusted each other against them whom we didn't trust, us being the society, them being the polity. I wrote about that at some time and said, look, this is lovely and I love this side of it, but it's unsustainable because the only thing which makes us one unity is the sense of an opponent. 
Now I thought that this was a good opponent to have so I applauded it but I worried about what the future would be. I hoped that when, as would inevitably happen, the unity under, against communism disintegrated, it would disintegrate into patterns based on interest and ideology supported by institutions, civil society organisations, able to interact, and here was a key word, in civil interactions, where my rival is not my enemy, where the parliament doesn't hear people in a country which, where these words have weight, not like in Australia, where people are accused of treason. No one, Mr Shorten doesn't accuse Mr Turnbull of treason, but if he did, we would think, what's going on here? The word doesn't have the weight here, which it has in a country where treason has been a very, very serious word, a serious fact of life. So when this happens, toxic passions come to rule. When they are inflamed, as I believe they have been inflamed, by the present governing power, it seems to me something tragic to the spirit of the country is occurring and quite apart from the institutional and perhaps boring things, but I'm a lawyer, I'm allowed to be boring, that I began by talking about, this spiritual degradation seems to me very, very, uh, a very great pity. Thanks very much.